the experience itself, I, I mean the nuts and bolts of it, the training, etc. That that wasn't too difficult. So in that sense, it was underwhelming. And uh, but uh, the experience of being up there and looking at the planet that was quite out of the ordinary. Uh, and uh, it, it doesn't leave you. It's very impactful. And then um, when you return back, uh, when, when you look at the kind of uh, uh, response you get, because uh, 84, uh, uh, compared to today, spaceflight was still a bit of a novelty. Uh, so, um, and especially in India, in India, because we never had any activity like that. So, so that was difficult. So, so people generally reacted so much to the image which was built up. Uh, and, and there was only one TV channel at that time. So, so in effect, uh, space came into the drawing rooms of uh, our uh, Indians and uh, that uh, <clears throat> made quite an impact with them. So as a result of that, uh, the adulation and all was something one was very unprepared for. So that, so that was the difficult part. But then again, if you look at it as a, as, as a professional, like, like I said, uh, the uh, flight itself, the professional part of it, uh, somehow was not challenging enough, I would say, primarily because uh, a lot of control was autonomous, done by the computers and... Uh, we were being a test pilot, we were and a fighter pilot before that. Uh, we are used to more hands-on control. So in effect, it was like waiting to see what happens. So you are just a curious onlooker uh, f during the transit. Yeah, it did take something to adapt to zero gravity. That took some doing because you can't replicate uh, the exact conditions on ground, therefore you're not trained for that. So you are kind of learning on the job. So that was, I would say, the segment that was a bit challenging, but otherwise. Back in the day, you chose to participate in the program. How difficult was the competition? And why do you think that you were chosen? <laughs> uh, I tell you, um, anybody, anybody, and I think we were probably about a billion at that time. If you had asked anybody, everybody would have wanted to go because it was it was such an, well, let's call it an out of the world experience. Uh, so who wouldn't want a piece of that action? Uh, but to be quite frank, uh, I never ever dreamt. It wasn't one of my dreams. Uh, of course, I, I dreamt of being a fighter pilot and I became one, luckily. Uh, but never ever thought of going into space because our country never had a manned space program. So it would have been futile to just even think about it. So I never thought about it. But uh, it was, ours was a different, I think our flight was before its time. Uh, even now, uh, we are just preparing, perhaps next year, we'll be sending our own uh, Indian astronauts uh, aboard uh, the Indian launchers using Indian technology. So we are talking about what happened 40 years earlier. So, so really speaking, from, from uh, a planning standpoint, um, ISRO was really not ready to uh, get into this 
part of exploration. ISRO was just busy uh, with the with their satellite program. So, uh, but because the then Soviet Russia uh, wanted, I was a beneficiary of the Cold War, I would say, because there was competition going on between America and Russia, and Russia wanted to wanted the world to know that India is with them in their camp. So they offered that flight to India. And uh, ISRO, like I said, was not keen. And uh, then Mrs. Gandhi offered the flight to the Indian Air Force. And very gladly, Indian Air Force grabbed it. Um, then uh, the Soviets said that uh, it would be better if we could uh, get a test pilot because there wasn't any time left. Elections were around the corner. So, so, so I happened to be young uh, at that time, relatively, happened to be fit uh, because I was always an outdoorsy kind of a person. Mm, and I happened to be lucky uh, to be the right guy at the right place at the right time. So. Could you tell us a bit about your uh, Soviet colleagues, your interactions with them? The crews were, I mean, they were like, like aviators anywhere in the world. We have a special bond. So uh, in that sense that um, I was the only guy doing the first flight. There were three of us. The other two, Yuri Malashev and Gennady Strakalov, uh, both were, had already flown into space. So there was that sense of comfort with them. And uh, and I, I think uh, all in all, it was a, it was a very uh, fruitful interaction. Uh, they did the mentoring, and uh, there was no problem whatsoever. Where was the Soyuz team based, and where were you all trained? We did our training in um, uh, outside Moscow at Star City. That's the Yuri Gagarin uh, uh, space. Uh, facility, uh, training facility. And uh, that's where we trained. And then we moved to Baikonur from where the launch took place. So the final part of the training just prior to the launch uh, practiced uh, last minute things like docking. If it won't go well, then how do we uh, still manage to retrieve uh, the spaceflight itself, because if you can't dock with the laboratory, then you can't do any experiments. So, so that's what all the training was in Moscow, out of Moscow. Zvezny Garadok, the star city. Do you remember your fears, if any, in the process of preparing for your first flight? I was an experienced test pilot by the time I was selected. And I would say that uh, all I won't even say uh, military aviators, all aviators have uh, reconciled with the prospect of it, it being a riskier profession uh, than what everybody thinks. Though today, I would say that crossing a road where there's traffic is equally risky. <laughs> but uh, being a riskier profession, somehow we, all of us professionals, have come to terms by then. So there was no fear uh, at that level. And, and the way I processed the fact that I would not be in control uh, and that my destiny is going to be shaped by a computer, uh, it was futile to worry. 
And so, therefore, uh, I just took it in my stride. Okay, if it works, it works. If it doesn't work. But then I was not the first guy going up. So many had been there before me and, and they, they returned too. So, I mean, I really wasn't worried at all. I was an observer. What were your first thoughts when you realized that you were actually in space? It was um, absolutely stunning. Uh, of course, by that time, I would say um, Gagarin went up in the early 60s and the Americans followed thereafter. So there was a lot of material already in the media in terms of photographs and things. So one really knew uh, what to expect. And there were color photographs. But when you actually go up there and uh, you experience the, uh, uh, I would say, the environment, you're, you're floating all the time, something you're not used to, and, and, and the visuals are absolutely stunning. And it, it hits you uh, in a very impactful way at the scale on which things are. And uh, I would say that it gives you a, a wider perspective of your own existence. Uh, and therefore you start, you return as somebody who is a lot more mindful about the fact that there is no other place uh, which is as comfortable as planet Earth. And therefore, uh, we really need to look after it and, and not, uh, we need to take care of the resources and use them frugally and not do what we are doing because we are systematically, I think, uh, due to our greed, uh, due to our so-called development, uh, we are exhausting the uh, limited resources which planet Earth has got. And uh, therefore, uh, you come back with a, with a changed perspective in that sense. How long were you in space for? We went up in the Soyuz, we docked with the Salyut, we transferred to the Salyut through a tunnel which was formed due to the coupling of the Soyuz and the Salyut. And we lived in the Salyut, which essentially is a steel cylinder, much smaller, <laughs> smaller than this. Uh, and, uh, and that's it, we worked there. So it was in that confined space, we stayed for eight odd days, uh, but that's no great shakes because the world record is 400 plus days. So, so it's, a, it's a wonderful place to visit, but a difficult place to work in. I would say everything keeps flying because there's no gravity. So all your uh, tasks, you have to do it sequentially. So you can't let things keep it on the table. I mean, everything would be flying off the table. So one by one, you've got to do those tasks and it takes a lot longer. You need a lot more patience, you need a lot more diligence. But it's, this is something which you pick up and you learn on the job. Really curious to know what you ate in space. Too much of a good thing. We had to choose between 80 dishes. Yeah, and uh, of course, it, 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 it couldn't be laid out like a, like a buffet. Um, so you had to go to the larder and select whatever you wanted. And there's a whole new way of eating there. Because, and in fact, even the way the food was prepared, uh, like rice was prepared in, in a manner such that 
the grains would stick to each other so that they don't fly about in zero gravity. So you had to carve a piece out with your spoon and put it in your mouth. So they were non-vegetarian dishes. They were, you know, while we were under training, we were introduced to uh, different kinds of foods. And that's when they found out who was fond of what. And they used to make sure that when that crew goes up, those dishes were available. Those things in the tins and breads and with honey and stuff. And oh, it was lovely. And yet, at least my appetite increased. I, I overate. I, <laughs> the, I felt the need for more mustard, you know, because, uh, because the taste buds kind of come alive. Uh, so it was, it was nice. There's no problem. Also, did you do any sort of special exercises to stay fit out there? Yeah, you do, because uh, what happens is that when you're not using muscles, and remember the heart is also a muscle, it tends to get deconditioned when you're in zero gravity. So, uh, because nothing weighs, so exercises you don't do. So you have to find ways to load your body either from a cardiovascular standpoint or from, uh, from, from, um, for the muscle tone to return. So you, you do a bit of dynamic tension, you do a bit of running or cycling uh, over there, uh, just so that you get, give yourself a cardiovascular massage. And so there are techniques, uh, that's how humans can survive for the, for more than 400 days. Now let's see how, what solutions they come up with when you actually move to the moon and, and other planets. You spoke to the then Prime Minister of India, Indira Gandhi from there. What did she say to you? Well, she kind of uh, led the questions which uh, I would say the uh, rest of the observers in our country were keen to know the answers of. So, so naturally the question, one of the questions was, she congratulated all of us for having completed our training and uh, having a successful launch. And then uh, of course, the inevitable question as to how India looks from space. So, so one had to describe that. In fact, I would say that uh, I did try my best to share that experience because one of the programs from Orbit was when I was given a, a video camera and I took it around the uh, Salyut 7 and through the windows showed them how the Earth looks. It was my attempt to share the lovely visuals with, with my countrymen. Would you like to return to space? I would, yes, uh, I would. But I would like to return as a tourist. Reason being that uh, space is such an expensive activity that when I was there last, each minute of the space flight was one had to do something or the other to make the flight productive. So there was no time really to press your nose against the window and look at the world go by. So I don't mind going back again, but as a tourist. Back in the day, did you have any astronaut role models? Uh, like I said, this this fell out of the blue into my lap, and uh, all of us, of course, Yuri Gagarin was uh, was uh, the one who started it all, and uh, then he visited India, and that was created quite a splash. 
So these were household names, Yuri Gagarin, Alan Shepard, and, and all these guys. Uh, it was only later that when one was actually uh, in this game oneself that one realized the degree of difficulty that is there. For example, in Star City, you met icons like Valentina Tereshkova, like uh, Leonov, and uh, then you found out that the kind of stuff they did, they did it for the very first time. Leonov went out into open space for an extravehicular activity. Then at the Association of Space Explorers, you met guys like Bruce McCandless. You read about John Young. I mean, these were the real heroes, you know, because McCandless was untethered. He was, he was flying, uh, floating next to the shuttle without any uh, tether. And, uh, and he was trying out the man maneuvering unit. So, so there were a lot of role models, but before I actually went, these were household names, but you didn't really know what exactly they did. Do you believe in existence of life outside of Earth? In aliens, perhaps? Uh, you don't have to look out. <laughs> yeah, I think we've got aliens living on this planet but because there are guys in the... You know, people who are really greedy, who don't bother about, uh, about either the environment uh, for personal gain, people who don't uh, share. Uh, where are you going to take all of this, you know? So uh, we, we've, uh, I think, misunderstood the concept of, of um, living an exclusive lifestyle, uh, this business of uh, rallying under a flag and uh, protecting your borders. And when, when all of us have a common destiny, actually, you know, and we are interdependent on each other. So, so conflict for profit. Uh, I mean, this is a very alien concept, except when it comes to the way India looks at, you know, the inclusiveness. Our, our culture uh, is, is different. It is, we look at the world as one family. So, so that is the difference. Talking about aliens, other intelligences, I think it's typically arrogant of us humans to think that we are the only intelligent life in this vast universe. It's, it's just that our sense of distance is limited to uh, whatever we are used to. Uh, and, and science hasn't really yet opened all the doors. We really don't know how we can change dimensions. We don't know what lies on the other side of a black hole. Maybe there are other universes, there are other civilizations. It's just that we haven't made contact. But to think that we are the only guys, if really we were that special, would we behave the way we are behaving? Is my question and my doubt. And therefore, I think there has to be alien life more evolved than us. And I, in fact, I look forward to that kind of a contact. Uh, I've, been a, I've been very fond of science fiction, and uh, this topic has been covered vastly uh, by science fiction movies, by books, and it resonates with me. Do you believe in the next 50 years or so, we'll be able to open a settlement outside of Earth? 
on another planet, maybe. Yeah, we we from a technological standpoint, we will be able to open, but whether we are going to derive anything from it you know, on on a on a on a happiness scale, I have my doubt. Uh, primarily because uh, you are you are leaving paradise and going into a desolate area, trying to rebuild another paradise, when in actual fact, uh, you have not been able to sustain the paradise you are in. So, so I would say, technologically, it'll be, you'll be capable of doing that. But I would rather that uh, some kind of regulation comes in, because our track record hasn't been very good at all. So there's no point building a far off hill when you have paradise right here. So let's practice sustainability on planet Earth first before we move out. Otherwise, we are going to, after us, uh, deluge wherever we go in our solar system. I mean, we go to get our act right. We go to see what we've done. We must realize what is the end use of, of technology. We've never bothered about that. We split the atom and we've made nuclear bombs. You know, uh, it's time to get off this belt of, uh, shall we say, development, technological development, and ask ourselves some hard questions and get our act right before we move out. If you were offered to colonize other planets without the possibility of coming back to Earth, would you take up that offer? Yeah, I would, I would do that with a, with a different set of rules. I would do that. I mean, here we already have the United Nations Office of uh, Outer Space Affairs, which has got a Vision 2020 document which talks of, the, uh, of outer space being for the greater good of humankind, but we don't see any results on the ground. So, so you know, you got to... There has to be alignment... Uh, of a vision before we start achieving that vision. If we are going to continue in the same way, then all we are doing is uh, exporting conflict from planet Earth into outer space. So therefore, I need, we need to be, I believe we need to be a lot more circumspect. And I think uh, countries like India, countries like Russia, really, who we have a different uh, worldview. We have a different uh, outlook to space. We, we talk of cooperation. Uh, we talk of sharing of data. Uh, whereas uh, the Western Hemisphere, uh, because of the economic model they're following, it's all about profit. And profit is all about exclusion, uh, not inclusion. So, so there are a lot of complex things to be taken care of. So yes, uh, I would encourage, because ultimately, the fact is the human race is at risk if some uh, asteroid comes and hits us and we do not have uh, a copy of our genome and anywhere else. So, <laughs> so yes, we do need uh, a backup plan, but not as chaotic as, as we have now. And we need people to invest more in, in the future of humankind and which has to be inclusive and not exclusive.